Welcome to the Second in Command podcast, produced by the COO Alliance and brought to you by its founder, Cameron Harold. In the Second in Command podcast, we talk to top COOs who share the insights, strategies, and tactics that made them the chief behind the chief. And now, here's your host, Cameron Harold. Our guest today is Joe Abraham, operating partner for Beyond Academics. Joe is a serial entrepreneur, award-winning business advisor, and author of the critically acclaimed book, Entrepreneurial DNA. He's been adopted into several undergraduate and graduate study programs. His research into entrepreneurial behavior that led to the writing of the book also led to the development of the Bose Behavioral Assessment that has been deployed globally with over 150,000 participants. At Beyond Academics, Joe serves as operating partner and also oversees the BA Incubator, Innovation Consulting, and Entrepreneurial Mindset Education Initiatives. Joe's also finishing up research on BA's Culture of Innovation Assessment that helps organizations measure their internal capacity to innovate and transform. In addition to his role at BA, he oversees a portfolio of family-owned companies in sports, real estate, and wellness technology. He's been featured twice on the TEDx stage, as well as on Fox News, CNN, Network TV, and The Wall Street Journal as a subject matter expert in revenue generation, organizational transformation, and entrepreneurship. So Joe, welcome to the Second in Command podcast. Thanks. Great to be here. Yeah, this is great. I'm looking forward to diving into this. So just um, just really quickly, just because it kind of jumped out at me because I've, I've been around the, the TED community for years. What were your two TEDx talks about? Uh, the first one was Bend, Oregon, and that was the introduction to this bossy quadrant and the behavioral assessment work I did. So that was right about the time of the launch of the book. So I think that was like 2011. And then the next one was in the Chicago area as I started to uncover um, how the entrepreneurial behavior affected larger organizations. My original work was on the entrepreneur themselves, the business owner. And then it expanded to understanding how it affects teams and organizations. And so that was the second one. They both ended up being titled entrepreneurial DNA just because of how the uh, show producer decided to title it, but each had a little different flavor to them. So you've you've done a lot of research into this kind of entrepreneur then. So so describe them. What is the DNA of the entrepreneur? Yeah, so what I did was I didn't really look to say what, is, what makes somebody an entrepreneur. I believe that there's an entrepreneur inside everyone. At least that's what I've come to find. My work was in trying to segment the behavior and how on, different entrepreneurs make different decisions. Okay. So really what I find found is that within our entrepreneurial community, which also encompasses people who are in C-level roles and executive roles in small to medium and large companies, and depending on how you're wired, and my assessment helps you figure out how you're wired, it'll tell you and the people around you how you will likely make decisions in business and why you will make those decisions. It was important to uncover that because personality testing just wasn't telling me what I needed to know about mm how to interact better with you in a business environment. It helped me know how to get along with you at lunch, but it really wasn't going to tell me how our business decisions were going to interact with each other. And so this was my attempt to do that. Wow. Interesting. So how, how have you deployed this, this um, content and can you give any, can you give us any kind of quick tips with it? I mean, I know that as, as an entrepreneur and I'm a, a, if you know the Colby profile, I'm a very high quick yep. start. I'm a, in disc, I'm a 98 D. So I'm, I'm running a thousand miles an hour here yeah. in my mind. Can you, is it even fair to even ask you for a cheat sheet on each of those different profiles? Yeah, yeah no, no, no. I, I think I can pull it off. I, I think I can pull it off. So um, basically imagine uh, the typical quadrant, like you've seen anywhere else, right? If you were looking at a disc quadrant or whatever, you know, four sections, you've got the B and the O 
in the upper quadrant, the S and the I in the lower quadrant, and uh, the S and the I, I'm sorry, the S and the O opposite from each other, the B and the I opposite from each other. Yep. Uh, when you have what I call builder DNA, you're pre-wired to make decisions to scale organizations very quickly. Uh, if you have more of the opportunist mindset, you're more of the promoter, revenue generator, uh, sales-minded person for a set of reasons that we can unpack together. Then complete opposite to that behavioral profile are people who are the experts of our world, the, the, the specialists who behaviorally hate selling, hate ideas that are too big, hate stuff that's outside the box for a set of reasons that we found. And then you've got the innovator, the mad scientist type who wants to change the world. And there's a little bit of all those in every one of us, I'm sure we'd all agree, but there's always a dominant DNA that drives our decisions during a certain chapter of our life. We morph over time. So you could be a showing builder tendencies for one business you operate, but then, and this will become relevant to the conversation we're going to have about being in the number two spot or being in the number one spot or buying for one of those spots as your role changes. And as your circumstances change, these different DNAs activate, but they change how you make decisions. Mm. It's interesting. Yeah, I'm definitely a high O and a high B would be second from what yeah. I can tell just from your description. It'd be interesting to do the, the test and see. Um, and, and my girlfriend's very, very high S. And so, and you're right, there, there are definitely different uh, types of entrepreneurs. You can have, you know, very outward facing or very inward facing or very sales marketing focus, very engineering focus. You're right that the, you can be entrepreneurial, but now this is just talking about the type of entrepreneur That's you are. Exactly is that right? Correct. Exactly. And then, so if you're a second in command, then you have to be able to adapt your style to the entrepreneur you're working with. And then if the entrepreneur shifts over time, you have to be able to adapt to that as well. Or do you just have to work so that you understand them and can stay in sync with them? I think the really great ones um, very intuitively adapt. And hey, I'm working with this high-powered, highly driven, scale-oriented, you know, infrastructure gobbling, let's say, CEO. So how do I best complement them? They're leaving a lot of dead bodies along the way, you know, relational mm -hmm. conflict everywhere, blowing up people in the conference room. So I and the second, a second in command, adapt to fill those gaps and be more of the nurturer, be more of the 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 person healing the wounds. On the flip side, if my CEO is this highly innovative, highly creative, all over the place, <laughs> you know, change the world person, then I adapt to be the more organized, structured, stable, methodological yep. person. Yeah. But you can, can you imagine, and I've seen this plenty, and I'm sure you and a lot of your listeners have seen it. It's when you've got the mad scientist CEO, let's say, with the highly opportunistic second in command. Whoa. Well, the wheels are going to come off the bus. Come on, way off the bus. Yeah, because you're running yeah. a thousand miles an hour in sporadic. Yeah, exactly. Interesting. Yeah. So how do you, so, so have you taken this concept into the, the business that you're running today then? And do you teach, yeah, do you teach your employees I mean, I think this about as well? This. Well, think about this. Of all the places I'm looking to apply it, it's in higher education. Mm. <laughs> you want to talk about a world that's, um, that sees the word entrepreneur as their own kryptonite, but they are having to reinvent. I mean, the pandemic has transformed everything about their future and they're being forced to think entrepreneurially. But yeah, I think they're starting to have to look around going, okay, we can't all act and talk like specialists and then use the word transformation and talk about growth and change if we're all hiding in a corner. So yeah, I'm, I'm doing my best to educate them on how these roles need to fit together to create innovation. 
And um, kind of intuitively, I, we, we use it in any organization I'm part of. And I think every one of your listeners are using it. It's just all I've got is a framework that puts some letters and words around it. This is not rocket science. Even if mm-hmm. someone went and Googled my TED, TEDx talk, they watch 18 minutes of it and go, oh my gosh, that's so basic. But the framework, I think, is what allows people to have the conversation internally and be on a level playing field in meetings and planning sessions and even recruiting and hiring and developing people. So that's why I enjoy unpacking it for them. Do you think that that um, people can be that, you know, everyone can be an entrepreneur or do you think that everyone can be entrepreneurial? Gosh, that's a good question, isn't it? I would probably revert to option two. Yeah. Everyone can be entrepreneurial. I believe there's an entrepreneur inside every one of us. And when I'm with, you know, a, a company had me go to India to work with this mega billion dollar IT company. And they said, we need our tech people and our account managers to be more entrepreneurial, but we don't think they are. And it just took a couple of exercises to say to them, hey, look, here's the traits of an entrepreneur. When you really look at what is an entrepreneur, it's people displaying behavioral traits like future focus, idea generation, passion, willing to, you know, failure acceptance. And then you just have someone think about, and I would just encourage your listeners to think about this. If you got a phone call right now saying that someone very dear to you is in the hospital and we got to come up with $50,000 by tomorrow, what would you do? Would you sit there and go, I don't know, I'm, I can't think of any ideas? Or would you spring into action because there was a why? Right. And, I think, and all I think those traits what, kick in. Yeah, I think that's what I mean by entrepreneurial. I think that for me, the difference is, does someone actually then quit their job and, and put their income on the line? And, and will they go out and you know mortgage their house and, and take the risks of, of building and starting a company versus you know being entrepreneurial inside of a, a role where you know you're getting paid every day? Yeah. And I find that some of the, some, there's some great entrepreneurs who are doing the latter. They enjoy the comfort of a company. They enjoy the camaraderie and collaboration of being part of something bigger, mm-hmm. but they're being just as entrepreneurial, so to speak. They're being just as passionate, being just as much idea generators and innovators as the person who set up shop uh, to start on their own. Yeah. I've even had Behavi- the same, the behavior I've had is the same. same. I've had the same debate with people about franchising where they say franchisees are not entrepreneurs. I'm like, sure they are. They're, they're entrepreneurs that are following a system. They've still, right. you know, mortgaged their house and put the money on the line. And yeah, but they didn't come up with the idea. Well, it's such a fine line, right? But um, yeah, it's really interesting work that you're doing. So do you then teach this concept to all the employees as well? So they understand the entrepreneur or is this something that you are, how do you use this content or this information inside of VA as an example? Yeah, so I think one of the ways we I like to do it with any organization I, I get to touch or even in our own organizations is just spend 15 minutes drawing it on a whiteboard. And anybody listening could just, again, watch that free TED Talk. The assessment is free. You don't pay anybody for it. You just go take it on the website. And literally within you know 30 minutes of study, you can turn around and teach it to somebody else. So imagine uh, somebody listening is a director of HR for a company. Go watch that and then, or you're a, a VP of sales or you're a COO. You could watch that, unpack it very quickly. And then in a lunch and learn with your staff, just say, hey, everyone, take this assessment and come to lunch. Let's, I'm going to order lunch and let's just talk about this. And you'll be amazed how, how interesting that conversation gets when Sue says, oh my gosh, I'm a set specialist. And Bob, you're an opportunist. Now I understand why you drive me nuts. 
mm-hmm. and why you seem to be all over the place in your decision. And so then people start to really connect the dots themselves going, now when the CEO says, listen, gang, I've got this idea for a new product line, who wants in? You'll see teams naturally gravitate and go, I guess we need someone opportunistic who's going to sell the idea, but we need someone specialist to keep the wheels from coming off. And we need someone with some innovator DNA who can create and solve problems. And these teams kind of amalgamate around an idea as people understand it. Yeah. I love that. Like an entrepreneurial project team. So tell us about what um, Beyond Academics does. What's your, what's the core of the business? Yeah. So Beyond Academics, it was actually originally started by a former Deloitte partner who was heading up their higher education practice. And he very much like you described was an intrapreneur being entrepreneurial inside a very large organization, very successful, but decided to kind of set up his own shop because he saw the, the clouds forming around higher education. If you've kind of watched higher education from any perspective as a parent, as a student, as someone whose nephews and nieces are going into higher ed, it's a completely unsustainable model at which their costs are increasing and the value of what they're delivering is decreasing. And so he said, we've got to prepare the way for these groups to be transformational and really change everything about what they do. And then COVID hit and it forced them into that direction. So what we do is it's a lot of strategic guidance. These are some of the smartest people on earth, way smarter than any of us, uh, but they've just been inside the walls of the ivory tower. They just need outside perspective. Um, Mm. They just need case studies of organizations that have been transformative and been disruptive and not gone out of business in the process. And uh, they need people to talk to them about, yeah, these are customers. You have to treat them like customers. You have to find out what they want and serve their need. And you'll be surprised what kind of pushback we get on stuff like that, on even that kind of conversation, because the business community is not seen as um, equal to higher ed. But as as we do our best to educate them on that, I think the light bulbs are going off. There's some forward-thinking organizations that are really transforming. And then I think the rest will follow. And then there'll be a group that just don't make it. So who are your clients then? Um, It ranges from schools like Maryville University, a small private school that went digital uh, a couple years ago and is now growing like crazy because uh, it was a very progressive-minded president who kind of laid the foundation ahead of time. You've got schools like ASU and Southern New Hampshire University that are doing some very innovative things. And now the community college group is who we're spending a lot of time with because they actually have the ability to have the greatest impact the fastest. They just haven't been able to access good knowledge because they've been seen as kind of the lower end of the totem pole. And so the big consulting firms would go serve the Ivy Leagues and all the big guys who Mm -hmm. paid huge fees and community colleges really stand to be transformational in higher ed coming up. That's interesting. Why do you say that? I'm, I'm curious. Well, they, they can, they're just a little bit more nimble. Uh, they, yep. Their ear is much more to the ground of their local community and their needs. Yep. And um, they're not comfortable. Like when, if you're an Ivy League, if you're sitting on a multi-billion dollar endowment, right. you kind of right. don't think it's raining outside. Community right, colleges right. are scrappier. They, they just have to fight and battle and prove themselves every day in the marketplace. So I think they're going to be the leaders of transformation. That's interesting. You're right. They have to change, don't they? Yeah, they have yep. to adapt to die for them. That's right. So tell us about, um, about Beyond Academics in terms of the, this, the, the, the company itself. How many employees? How far distributed are you? Um, what's your organization look like? Yeah, so it's, it's uh, really when you look at it, it's a startup. It only started uh, right before COVID hit. So it's a small, lean organization, just a handful of employees under 10. You've got a visionary founder. 
um, with someone like myself kind of acting as his second in command. In some areas, he just treats me as first in command, but really he is the visionary, he's the leader. And I kind of morph around him as I better get to know him and understand his strengths and areas that he doesn't want to deal with. Then I look to compliment that um, as, his, as kind of his second in command. We've got a third operating, a third partner in the firm and then um, staff and contractors who are deployed out to do these consulting gigs. And what, what makes your ideal consulting gig? If you were to say, oh, that's a slam dunk or what, what do you, if you were marketing to find one, what would you be saying? Some, uh, we, we're leaning towards organizations that are predisposed to change. In other words, you've got a leader who recognizes that the status quo is not going to work. They've already convinced themselves and their senior team that they have to think and act more entrepreneurially. And uh, they've committed to the path. They just don't know necessarily what the playbook looks like. Those end up being very meaningful conversations for us. We've been in plenty of conversations with school that say, schools that say, hey, we've heard of you. Tell us what you'd like to do. And we start describing what it's going to take. And they say, well, we're going to have to get some consensus for the next six months and get everyone's buy-in on this and get IT to say yes and get, you know, human resources to say yes before we can move forward. And we know those are the ones who will be a little later in the transformation process. There's a longer sales cycle for you then? More so like not our ideal customer because we're going to spend so much time trying to convince them of what's best for them, that it's better for them to go a little further along, stub their toe a little bit more, maybe hit a few more enrollment problems um, before they're willing to listen to people like us. We're a little bit on the mad scientist side when it comes to some of the ideas we're presenting. And um, we need people who are ready to hear that. I often talk about that, that the learner controls the environment until the learner is ready to learn. They're not going to learn. It doesn't matter how good your content is until they've stubbed their toe or tripped and fallen, as I call it. They're, they're not going to, they're not ready to learn. Exactly right. And I think when we so, look to build culture inside the, in our organization, you know, if we have our sales organization or even our operational team and our consultants working on projects that are not exciting, just so we can build consulting hours, it's hard to maintain culture. But when we are working with really cool leaders and their teams and they're enjoying us and we're enjoying them, it doesn't feel like work. So I feel even from a culture perspective, it's an important piece of just knowing our target and serving them and not just trying to chase the dollar. So walk us through this culture of innovation assessment that you're developing. What, what is that and how does it work? Yeah. So if you think about any large organization, right, um, you end up obviously with layers in the cake, right, in the organizational cake. And I've had so many conversations with C-levels that say, we've got to move and we've got to make some, you know, we've got to be innovative and we've got to transform. And they, they cast a big vision, but then somewhere along the way, it breaks down because somewhere along the way, it seems like there's roadblocks and no one can put their finger on it. But I said, well, could, what could entrepreneurial mindset have to do with this, right? So because that's my lane, I started to ask some questions and started to find that in organizations where um, there's a perception that the organization is entrepreneurial, there's a higher tendency for innovation. But if my frontline workers or my factory people or my management layer, like the M level, isn't thinking and acting entrepreneurially, it doesn't really matter how innovative the C level is. It stops there. There's like this natural mm -hmm. blockade in the culture. And mm -hmm. so my cultural assessment culture assessments basically has everybody anonymously 
answer a handful of questions. Again, it's not rocket science, but it's just saying, do you feel our company is innovative when you compare us to the competition? It's just asking simple questions like that, right? Or do you, when it comes to marketing, are we a leader or are we a follower? When it comes to the person I report to, do I think they're highly creative and innovative or do I not? And what's interesting is as that data comes back and we separate the layers, it's interesting to score the C-level compared to the D-level, compared to the M-level, compared to the execution level, and wow. see where is there a delta in score on entrepreneurial mindset. And I usually find it in the manager level. But at least then it informs the C and D suite what they may need to do to unlock it. It's, is it programming? Is it education? Is it compensation? I don't get involved in recommending the strategy. I just say, here's where the bottleneck is in your ability to innovate at the rate the C-level wants to innovate. That's interesting. Uh, yeah. it's, it's really interesting as to what the, the different perceptions are. It also feels in, in a way that the survey results are almost persuading the client to actually work with you as well. Like they're almost getting preconditioned by some of the questions to think, shit, we kind of need some help here. Yeah, and then sometimes they'll ask for what do you what can you do? And sometimes we're like, well, we kind of don't know. We kind of stumbled across the assessment. And we just hope this provides you some insight to do some stuff internally. But of course, as best we can, we like to engage and help. But I'm finding, you know, we're only a handful of companies into the research, but I'm finding that there's a direct correlation between revenue growth rate and culture of innovation index. So I found that groups that uh, are in single digit growth rates. There's a direct correlation between single digit growth rate and a bottleneck in that entrepreneurial mindset. And on the flip side, when I'm seeing organizations that happen to have 20 plus percent growth rates, the rating of the C-level is not too different than the rating of the frontline people in their sure. feeling that we are a fertile ground for failure. We're a fertile ground for innovation. We're a fertile ground for my ideas to be heard. Anytime you see that open pathway, I'm seeing 20% plus growth rates. Yeah, it's interesting, that complete alignment. I like that. Yeah. yeah. You said you're a bit of a mad scientist as a company for ideas, ideas on culture or ideas on innovation or both. And, and when it comes to the higher ed space that we're serving now, it's a little bit of both, but it's mostly ideas on how they can transform. And it's really mm -hmm. saying, look, let's just talk to your customer. You haven't talked to them in 50 years. You've assumed you know what they want. But today's Gen Z or, you know, they just, they're just a different breed of human being. And if you don't understand their world, if you don't understand their digital ecosystem, um, you can say you want to run 16 week semesters all you want. They're not interested. Especially they're, when you're talking about the education system. My right, gosh, I right. can't even imagine how, yeah. how could you possibly be in education and not be talking to your customer today? Yeah, they, it's, it's, it's strange, but that's where we find us, us, we're kind of pushing, pushing, going, let, let's just get you some feedback. Here's what they're looking for. You're not that far away from being able to deliver it. But if you lock your heels in the sand and say, we will not change, we will not change, they will change for us. It's going to be a long couple, three years here coming up. Are you, are you actually then really focused on the community college as your core uh, market? We're finding them embracing this quite a bit, but it's, it's community colleges and mid-market is where we're focused. The Ivy Leagues and the big guys who have billions of dollars, A, they don't need us, um, and B, they're just not looking for that right now. It's and the mid-market. They, they want a lot more quantitative research, I would imagine, as well. 
Yeah, and there's really no license to change for them. There's really no reason to change. Kids are going to go to Ivy League schools. There, there will always oh, be a line to, to attend them. I think it's great. I think it's actually brilliant to go after that market. It's interesting. Like in, in a lot of ways, even when I've been building the COO Alliance, people said, well, why don't you do something for entrepreneurs? I'm like, because I don't want to. And, yeah, there's right. a million group, and there's a million groups for entrepreneurs. Right. You got YPO, right. IPO, and Vistage, and Genius. Network. There's so many groups for entrepreneurs. And then there was groups for marketers and lawyers and engineers, but there was no mastermind community for the second in command. I'm like, I'll just crush that one. No, that's a beautiful market. And, and how underserved it was till you tapped it. For sure. Well, what you're saying on the community colleges too, if you guys really go after that, that's a very, very, very big market. Mm-hmm. It is. It's a very big market. Where, where are you guys based as an organization? Home base is Chicago and the Chicago suburbs. And uh, we're just looking to set up in uh, the Arizona, in the Phoenix market and Miami, because there's a lot of innovative things happening there. So we'll probably be three locations. Now, will you go location-based or will you actually go as a remote organization? I mean, you're, you're small enough and young enough still to, to make that decision. Have you thought yeah, about remote, that? Yeah, remote is fantastic. More just like little satellite locations where when it is time to be on the ground, you know, we've got kind of a home base to operate out of. But yeah, you're right. Certainly not major infrastructure and big offices or any of that. Yeah, it's interesting. I was speaking to the second in command for the AARP, who is one of our past guests, and I just asked him, you know, how are they going remote? He said, I'll tell you, if you'd asked me a year ago if we could have ever been remote as a company, I would have said, no, you're crazy. And he said, a week after COVID was announced, we were all remote, all 1,400 employees. He said, we may never go back to offices. <laughs> no, it's, it's so true. And I think all your clients are, I mean, all your members are thinking through that and weighing out how that plays into their strategy. And it's such a fascinating conversation to think through the pros and cons, right? The, the benefits of remote versus the the culture and camaraderie of being together. And, you know, we're dealing with COVID now, but who knows what's coming next. I just think the adaptiveness of an organization is what matters most. The willingness to jump as needed. And that goes back to recruiting as well, right? If you recruit the right employees who expect that to be the culture coming in, is that where some of the alignment comes from? Or why do you think some companies are aligned at the sea level down to the front front line with their, their culture of innovation? What is it that gets those people aligned? Is it messaging? Is it hiring? Is it that they get lucky? What is it? I think I, I would, I think it begins with senior leadership who are clear on the why of the organization they're good at communicating it. They're good at living out the core values. It's just not a bunch of words on a, you know, on a wall somewhere in the manufacturing facility. Authentic leaders are infectious down to the next layer. And then when you get to that, um, especially the second in command, I honestly believe, and I've written about this, I believe the second in command is probably the most important person in an organization because they can literally take the founder or leader's vision and multiply it into the organization, or if they disagree with it, or don't have respect for that person in, in, in the C-suite, in the EO seat, they can completely change and transform the culture of an organization. They literally, I believe, are yeah. the spigot through which all things flow. So if you've got a great C-leader, and then if the COO in this case is fully aligned with the CEO, and just carrying out that mission, then the D suite is, is a recruiting play. I think you're right. I think it's on the COO to recruit rock star driven entrepreneurial D suite. If they don't mm -hmm. recruit rock star entrepreneurial D suite, 
by the next layer, the innovation is going to be dead. So what do you think you're doing right now then with the CEO of your organization? How, how do you and he stay on the same page? How do you guys stay aligned? And, and thirdly, how have you, um, I guess the secondly, because that's really the same thing. And then how have you divided up the organization in terms of roles and responsibilities? Yeah, I think part of it for me in him, in, because like in one company, I'm the C. EO and I've got my COO and in this company I have to switch gears and be number two while he's number one. So I'm, I kind of, in one sense, I get to see it from both sides. But I guess when I'm in, when I'm second in command, I'm really looking to understand them through a lens of empathy. Because if I just look at them as their Rolodex, if I just look at them as their resume, if I just look at them for their business accomplishments and I miss the human being, I think I miss part of my ability to serve well. So in Matt's case, who's, who's our founder, I've gotten to know him at a personal level and I've really chased after personal time with him, us doing lunches and dinners together and just hanging out and getting to know his family and really finding out from his spouse how he ticks both at work and off. And then it's how do I complement that? Like, what are the things that energize him? What are the things that drain him? And how can I best fill those gaps? I think that's helping me right now. And I hope that as, as some of your listeners listen, they go, oh, that's exactly what I'm doing. And it's working for me mm -hmm. as well. Or you know what, I just haven't spent the time because frankly, my CEO isn't as social, isn't as available. Uh, I would love for them to give me that time, but I'm not getting it. Then it would be like, how else can you um, get in their head a little bit? And then what we did was we just di divided and conquered. He's not, he doesn't like the finance side of the house. He doesn't like the day-to-day -day operational side. So I'm like, done, don't worry about it. Uh, he really is a fantastic, let's call it sales guy. Like he represents our brand really well. So then I'm like, Hey, whenever you need me, let me know. But if not, I'm not thinking sales. So would he be the O in your model? He's like an innovator opportunist. Yeah, I would say so. Hmm. So then I have to automatically turn on, which doesn't come naturally to me, a little bit of the specialist builder in me to complement his side of the quadrant. Um, so it's a little bit more work for me, but I find myself more the reins pulling things in while he's flying, but it's better to let him fly than him and I fly together and then we fly off the cliff. <laughs> For sure. And tell me about the mad scientist ideas. I kind of mentioned that and then we, I got sidetracked on that. How, what are some of the mad scientist ideas that maybe some of the schools wouldn't be that or some of the businesses might not be that apt to adapt or, or might think you're crazy? Yeah. So like you think about accessibility, if you think of it, let's, I'll give you the example in higher ed and hopefully some of your listeners will connect the dot and how this would apply to their world in higher ed. If you think of yourself as a typical student, historically you would enroll. I was like a Cal Orvine kid, right? So I went to school, I enrolled as a freshman and I finished the school. I did all my schooling in one school, not so much anymore. Students want to take a couple classes from here, a couple classes from there. Hey, there's a really good computer science program here, but I want to learn economics there. And so transcript portability becomes an issue. Right now, I would have to go to a school, send them an email or send them a letter, and then some human being has to go dig up my transcript, send it to me, then I got to send it to the other school, then some human there has to sit there and figure out how the courses I took at school A align with the coursework and credits at school B. It's very old school, it's very slow. And you can imagine, with the technology we have out there, why isn't just technology handling all that? Yeah. Um, the good news is there's really cool innovators who've built the technology. Higher ed's just kind of held them at high at arm's length going, we don't need you. We don't need you. But now the customer is saying, if you can't give me transcript portability, I ain't even coming to your school. And so now one of the harebrained ideas is imagine 
if the student could control their own transcript. You know, you look mm. at, let's say, blockchain technology now, for example, right? A student could control their own transcript, all their credentials, sovereignly owned by them. And then they can share that with school A, school B, school C, and school A, B, and C can deliver content into that, but it travels with the student. No different than their iPhone travels with them or their passport travels with them. And that gives the student the freedom to be a lifelong learner and build those micro-credentials, build those learning uh, credentials over time and never have to chase the registrar at a school they went to 20 years ago. It sounds like a crazy idea, but the technology exists. It would be game-changing for a learner. Um, we're trying to help higher ed connect the dot that this would actually be beneficial to them as well. That's cool. Yeah. How about yourself in terms of innovation? Where are you having to innovate and, um, and adapt right now, either because of COVID or just because of the role of, of now being in a second command role? How are you having to innovate and change as a leader? I think a lot of it comes it, it is in the area of um, adapting to the, the changing world on the client side. So we are somewhat of our sales focused organization since we're in the consulting space, right? It's about getting clients and serving them, getting clients and serving them. While we're teaching other people to be innovative, we kind of have to drink our own Kool-Aid. And wait a minute, why are we getting on a plane to go to Miami this week to meet somebody? Do we really need to get on a plane? You know, like, you know, and when we look at technology, everyone's getting a little bit of Zoom burnout. So what else is, what are some other learning platforms we can find for people? Where can we go to find the coolest AI and new technologies that can not just help us as an organization, but can help our, our clients as well. So I think that's where I'm putting my innovative hat on is to say, you know, even though I'm comfortable in certain environments, I love being face to face with people. Um, maybe it's time to look at things a little differently. I like it. All right. If we were to go back to the Joe Abraham, he's, you know, 21, 22 years old, graduating from college. What advice would you give yourself or just starting out in your career? What advice would you give yourself back then that, you know, you know today to be true, but you wish you'd known when you were younger? You know, um, a lot of lessons learned in humility. I think all of us, uh, especially those who, um, like some of your listeners who have reached high levels of success with their titles and their credentials and their levels of responsibility and PL oversight, it's easy to start believing that you're that awesome. <laughs> and the sooner you start really believing that, um, I think you're in danger because there's, even if you look around us, right, the world of politics, or you look at the world of uh, celebrity, power can just screw with a person's mind. And um, I think, yeah, I would tell my 20-year-old self, just, you're not that awesome. Just, you're going to learn some things in your 30s that are going to humble you, and you could avoid that dramatically by just serving other people, being humble and enjoying the ride, you know, find those mentors, study under them, but don't get smarter than the mentor. That was the big mistake I made. I found one of the greatest mentors on earth when I was 25. He said, Joe, come work for me. I'm going to pay you half of what you're worth, but in three years, you'll know more than any of your peers. I'm like, deal, let's go. But two and a half years in, I was smarter than him, you know, and I'd found all the things that were wrong with him and how I would do it better. And I was his second in command, but you know, pridefulness gets in the way. And I think that was the big lesson learned. I like it. Well, you're pretty awesome now. Uh -huh. Joe Abraham. <laughs>
Joe, the uh, operating partner for Beyond Academics. Thanks very much for sharing with us on the Second Command podcast. I really appreciate the time. Thanks for having me on. That was great. Appreciate it. You've been listening to Second in Command, brought to you by COO Alliance founder Cameron Harold. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe. For more best practices from industry-leading COOs, visit COOalliance.com.